Well, good morning, good afternoon, good evening, good grief, wherever you are. Here is another Agile podcast. Agile Coaching Mastery from the Agile Coaching Mastery crew. Here's a strange guy. Hi, and welcome to another episode of the Agile Coaching Mastery podcast and YouTube channel. Brought to you by the Agile Coaching Mastery crew. Our crew consists of Agile coaches from around the world who record the podcast for an international audience, free of time zones. You can listen when you want. We do this to help increase the skills, knowledge, and experience across the Agile coaching community. And it's for free. Every week we explore another part of this wonderful Agile coaching landscape. Each episode is recorded live and unscripted on Friday. Let's join the crew and their friends for this week's episode. Yeah, we've got another of our episodes with our good friend Tony Christensen from Australia, Head of Enablement Agility Enablement. I'll go right up. Tony will introduce himself, of course, uh, from Australia. Uh, Raz isn't with us this week. He's actually having the nonsense injection right now. I say nonsense only in the sense what a nonsense it's been. I'm not saying injections are nonsense, not at all, uh, obviously. And Ricardo, you want to say hello, Ricardo? Good morning, good afternoon. Hi, everyone. So good to be here again with you and Tony. Yeah, it's, it's great. Uh, we did a wonderful, uh, wonderful show last week with Tony and managed to convince him to do a double header. So he's here with us again this week. Um, maybe we can convince him to carry on doing these for months, who knows. But anyway, good. Uh, it's good evening for you, Tony, isn't it? Yes, it is indeed. Thank you for having me back. Um, I thought last week was was uh, enjoyable, so um, hopefully you'll find the content today equally so. So we have, we have, of course, have, have uh, friends on Clubhouse as well. We've got, uh, just looking down, about 20 people on Clubhouse joining us as well who can hear this. You can't see them, of course, but uh, they are there. And uh, what we're going to do this week is allow Tony to introduce a topic or theme he wants to talk about and then take some questions on that. So, um, and we, we did mention a little bit of what it was last week. So uh, maybe, Tony, I could just ask you to introduce the topic and at some point in about 10 minutes... Uh, I might see what the clubhouse audience want to do, but I think also Ricardo and I might interrupt you, <laughs> as it were, and uh, and ask questions. So uh, is that all right? Over to you, Tony. Perfect. Um, thank you all. Uh, for those that weren't here last week, a very quick intro to me. Uh, my name is Tony Christensen. I'm presently uh, holding a number of different roles, but the one that's taking up the large percentage of my time is the head of agility at uh, Kmart, uh, Head of Agility Enablement, uh, purposefully chosen because uh, we are not a command and control centre forcing a end result for a transformation. We're there to help an organisation become a learning organisation and organically grow into one. And, and that actually kind of leads into uh, the topic that, that, uh, that I've offered up today, which is uh, the path of the least resistance. Um, and I'll uh, pay homage to a good friend of mine, Martin Kearns, who um, he and I uh, have known each other for the better part of probably um, 15, 16 years. Um, and Martin, when I returned to Australia last year, uh, we reconnected. And uh, one of the things that we did, which um, I'm deeply appreciative of, is uh, we, we form a little book club with each other where... Um, we once a week get together, um, we have read the last chapter of whatever the current book is, and then we discuss it and the things that we got out of it. And, and uh, as a result, we um, managed to uh, provide deep insight uh, or deeper insight that we might not, uh, not have otherwise have achieved on our own. And one of the books that, um, that uh, Martin put in front of me, and I've got to say it was with great resistance on my side for 
a, a particular reason, which I'll describe in a second. But um, but this book was uh, a book called uh, The Path of Least Resistance by Robert Fritz. Um, I think I can do something as clever as uh, show the book on screen um, so that you've got it on your on your videotape. Uh, can you see that there, The Path of Least Resistance? It's just yes. coming up, Tony. It's just coming up. Yep, we Excellent. can see that. Yep. Okay, terrific. Well, I will un- undo that now. Um, stop sharing it. Um, essentially, uh, in going through this book, it reinforced patterns of behaviour and, uh, and and patterns of transformative um, uh, actions that uh, I had been cultivating over the last um, 10 years. And this book really sort of uh, nailed, hammered it home for me, which um, essentially is... Uh, and this is my key message for the day. So I'm giving it up front, then I'll come back around to it at the end. That, that when you're trying to introduce change of any kind, um, if you treat it as some sort of project, that is it has a defined scope that takes you from one state to a defined end state, uh, that that is often the recipe for um, failure, not at the time of completing but the fact that after you've supposedly got to your end state, um, a whole series of things happen, um, which I'll loosely uh, call uh, the rubber band effect, which snaps the organisation back into previous operational modes, um, pre- previous behaviours, pre- previous uh, ways of working. Um, and what what I focus on these days uh and, and have done quite successfully with the last couple of organisations is uh, to change the system within which people work. And by changing the system within which people work, that then allows them to find that the path of least resistance for day-to-day working is guided by a new system, a new framework, new, new, new channels. If you think of it in terms of waterways that carve pathways through the earth, the the uh, path of least resistance is for the water to follow those channels and pathways, and so my my transformation efforts uh, in helping an organisation become a learning organisation is focused on how to change the structure of uh, the organisation. I don't mean the just the, the organisational line management structure. I'm talking about the processes, the the experiences that people have, the governance models, everything that actually defines what you can do and what you can't do, it's focusing in on changing that such that there is far less effort by change engineers such as myself and many of the uh, Agile coaches on on the call. Um, Instead of it feeling like we're constantly pushing the snowball to the top of the hill, it's actually about changing it so that the hill is shorter or flatter so that what you're trying to do actually happens with much less resistance and many people are actually then shouldering into it. Now, I've sort of talked cryptically about it in general. I'll, I'll, I'll talk to you about uh, how it's achievable because I think this is the, the, the real value in the conversation. Um, when you think about an organisation and the structures that exist within it, um, you 
it doesn't take very much uh, searching to start to find the things that you need to focus in on. Um, so as an example, uh, the path that I took for the, uh, for the Royal Bank of Scotland was to describe, I wanted to, uh, to model the, um, the fastest way to get value from idea, its first conception, through to that being in the hands of, of a colleague or customer, and uh, if not quickly in their hands, I want to quickly learn that it was a bad idea or an idea ahead of its time. Idea to value, now, as you said at the time, I think. Idea to value. Exactly. Yeah. The idea to value um, uh, value stream, or, or I call it the idea to value blueprints, because what I wanted it to become was the... the, the uh, the currency of all conversations when it came to change. What are the things that we want to change? Why do we want to change them? Well, I was always anchor, able to anchor them back to, well, how does this improve the rate and cost and risk profile of the idea to value process? Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to throw it up on the screen just for a moment, again, for, for your, your uh uh, viewers in the future, um, so that uh, you've got at least some sense of what that looks like. And um, for people on Clubhouse, so, we'll, uh, uh, we, what we'll do in the show notes uh, in the podcast is create a link to um, a link to the videos, and uh, part of that will also include maybe a screenshot of this for people to help, Tony. Terrific. So um, even though this looks complicated... This is what I would call the minimum viable bureaucracy of a large-scale organisation. That is one of the least number of things that we need to take into consideration when we are conceiving an idea and uh, then trying to test the value of that idea against other ideas. How do we then, um, with the least amount of effort, identify whether or not it has uh, commercial uh, value, does it have customer desirability and is it technically feasible to do? So those are really the triangle of things you really need to test with an idea. Um, how, do, how you then fund it rapidly and then how do you then um, draw down on the funds that you think uh, you need to draw upon by teams that are persistent and long-lived that then allow you to go through experimentation loops and then ultimately into um, uh, incremental or iterative delivery, uh, depending on the problem type or the idea that, that uh, you're trying to progress. The things that you see on the right-hand side are uh, essentially work breakdown structure. So if you think about enterprise portfolio, contains the big rock definitions of things. As you move um, down and, and break that work up into the initiatives that will deliver it and then ultimately the epics and stories, uh, it shows the artefact hierarchy that, you know, you can see traceability from the top of the portfolio down to the team level and all the way back up again. Now, that's not the part I want to focus on in the conversation today, but what I wanted to do was to say to you that when you have in mind what it is that you need to change, the very first thing you need to identify is what are the systemic things in the organisation that prevent you from getting there? Those systemic things might be... Um, well, uh, decision-making doesn't allow me to get to that state quickly. That is, I've got to ask my boss and my boss has got to ask their boss and then there's got to be, a, you know, a, a meeting of colleagues that will get together and decide are these good things to do. 
or it might be um, that you've got uh, uh, process control and governance processes in place that that uh, impede getting these uh, ideas or this work being done quickly. Um, it might be that you have recruitment policies that make it hard to get people on board when you need them on board or to shift people to different initiatives when there's a higher order need for their skill sets and capability to be on the other initiative, et cetera. So there's all of these things which are systemically part of the environment, if you like, the way in which the organisation works today. By having a map like the one that I've drawn here, idea to value, and it could be whatever your chosen map ends up being, so don't think that it's the idea to value thing that I'm selling today. But once once you've got that idea and you start to look at what are the systemic impediments, the way in which, and I call this uh, somewhat of a judo move, um, don't place a lot of your own energy and efforts to make it happen. Find the way that actually makes the current owners of that part of the system lean into it, fall into it. So they, they, they uh, lean their weight into it, not you pulling or pushing. Um, yeah, and, and so I can big, see I can see why that's a judo move because the big part of judo yeah. is to use the opponent's weight against them. Exactly. Yeah. It's uh, and the the one of the largest problems with trying to invoke transformative change in companies is convincing the people that own those things that they should do something differently. And one of the reasons why, one of the many reasons why, is that they've been highly successful in doing things that way up until now. Yeah, um, they have been. They have optimised for their part of the organisation. So for them, it's actually working highly efficiently for them. But when you zoom out and look at the system as a whole, the system of a company, and then you start to trace work and you start to trace um, cycle times and wait times and, um, and start to apply theory of constraints by identifying where are the bottlenecks that are occurring in getting work done, that then starts to illuminate that whilst they might have optimised for their area, they haven't optimised for the system as a whole. Quite right, yeah. Yeah. So how I came to this realisation was fairly simple. Um, uh, very early on in the piece, I uh, ran an, an eight to ten week process of bringing people into a, um, a collaboration space and asked them to describe what it was that um, they were required to do in order to get work done. I then brought in people who owned parts of that uh, governance and control process and asked them to describe what the inputs and outputs were and where did they play a role in the journey of work. And what I've put on the screen right now is actually a five-metre-long, hand-drawn, complicated drawing of the actual process that people were forced to go through including all of the iteration loops that they would have to go back and, uh, you know, they'd be asked to review or refine a document, submit it back in again, round and round and round it goes. Um, And so this represents both the documented and undocumented system within which we work. And by making people see it, particularly those that own the parts of the processes that people are governed by, It allowed them to self-reflect and see the system as a whole as opposed to their component of the system. And it then became very easy to talk to them about, so what 
what do you see that is beneficial to getting work through the whole system that you have the ability to change control or influence and what would you do differently? This then allowed us to say, okay, we could spend the next decade, in fact, I think I use the phrase, my grandchildren's grandchildren will still be trying to improve this process for you if the way that we're approaching it is to try and fix the major pain points. There's actually too many pain points in this end-to-end journey. So instead of doing that, let's reimagine what the minimum viable end-to-end process might be. And then I'm going to ask you the question, how is you as a leader going to support the implementation of this process? So what do you need to do differently? How will you change your artifacts, your forums, the frequency within which you meet? We um, Essentially, and we use the phrase, what are the boundaries and interactions that you think that you need to have to bring the new process to life. Now, yeah, okay. it doesn't, it's, not, it's not just that, but here's an example on the screen now of how the architecture team remodelled what they do today over the top of this minimum viable process. This minimum viable process or, uh, or, or bureaucracy um, describes not just the activities but also the desired cycle time. So, we only ever want to see something sitting in the idea queue for four weeks before it's picked up. Ideally, we want it to be shorter, but that's our first step, maybe four weeks. In some organisations, you might decide that that would be uh, maybe once a quarter we want to examine new things. Either way, it's entirely up to you. But the point being, it has both the high-level steps and the cycle time that we want to achieve. And by presenting that as the challenge to each of the leaders that own the components, they then get their teams to work on how do I achieve that cycle time for that step in this end-to-end process. That's the judo move. That's now, the, judo. Yeah. Okay. the second aspect of the judo move is um, leaders on their own will, again, optimise just for their area, even if they're following this sort of guidance. Yeah, yeah. Um, so rather than um, having them experiment with something new we were, uh, and, and then at some stage later understand the consequences. What, what we did was we assembled um, the, those leaders into a working group, a perpetual working group, which was called the uh, Delivery Model Working Group. And essentially what that Delivery Model Working Group did was each of them would bring their, um, their design for how they might reimagine their work based on this um, idea to value blueprint because we're using that as the currency of common conversation, they would bring their implementation and design plan forward and then their peers would prosecute it. They would say, I can see how this would help, but this isn't going to help us because of X, Y, Z. And so essentially they became a a self-driven, self-improving peer-judged and peer-agreed change program for changing the system as a whole. And that still operates and still continues to um, examine when someone has found that, you know, 12 months down the track, uh, we think we need to change the way in which we've implemented, I don't know, the audit process. It'll come back to the same working forum with the same leaders who will all have their own vested interests in the way in which audit might work. 
and they will peer prosecute each other and then arrive at a common decision that will then implement. And all we as change agents need to do is to sit back, facilitate the conversation, ensure that it's constructive, assure that it's anchoring back to the things that we're trying to optimise for in our minimum viable bureaucracy, and then those leaders drive the change, they support each other in the change, and they keep each other honest in the change. Mm, oh, very good. So that's probably yeah. put a peg in, in it and ask, does that make sense? Yeah, that's it's great. Uh, just back to the Clubhouse audience, if you're interested, uh, want to ask a question on this, uh, please put your hand up, come on stage. A couple of things I noted that I really liked were don't fix the pain points, create a new ideal way forward that's really a useful point i think um uh the idea of you know local optimization is everywhere and you've got to find them haven't you i mean last week i simply had a very briefly i'll tell a story i simply had to create a a job description for an advert for someone and i created what was a quite odd job description you know nothing but what was needed uh it got sent into the uh bureaucracy of the company i'm at and out came a a advert for a ba and I said, well, this is nothing like what I asked you to do. And she went, yes, but these are the ones that we can advertise easily. <laughs> and I said, well, yeah. what, what's going to happen now is I'm going to interview BAs, none of whom are going to be the right candidate for the job. You've increased my workload incredibly. Why can't you just put the advert out that I wrote, that we wrote for, for this particular role? And the person said, well, that's just a bit more difficult for me. So um, I was nice, I was polite, I was friendly, and I didn't call them an idiot. You know, <laughs> that would be unfair because, you know, they're, in a, they're seeing what they can see. Uh, you know, they're seeing what they can see. So, And then I think the other thing that struck me was the visualise the work allows you to see where everything is, and that's a classic Kanban, isn't it? Ricardo, what do you think of these things? I think it was very yeah. useful, very good. I think it's brilliant. My question is, how hard was it to get them to see your model of work and to use it in the beginning? Was it a model you brought from another place? Was it something that you had to build there? I built it there because, um, as with all uh, all tr- uh, change, it's it needs to be adjusted in the context of the, the organisation you're in. So to reveal, I guess, the... the um, the first set of steps that I went through, I used um, a uh, a model that's called the physician's model, which I stole with pride from um, another framework, which essentially is uh, I listened to the symptoms of the organisation. I went round and I captured all of the anecdotes that I could find from everyone at every level of the organisation that I, I could reach in a three-month period. So everyone from the leaders at the CEO level, their change management teams, um, the uh, people that are in operations teams. I even table-bombed people in the cafeteria just to say, hi, can I share your table? And then they would um, just share in conversation things that were, you know, bothering them in their job. You know, it's amazing how much people will share when they think they're in non-threatening and safe uh, uh, conversation. Um so I would take all of these verbatims and put them on a wall and those I, I represented as these are the symptoms that people feel in this organisation. I then went through and, and hypothesised what I thought were the root causes of those symptoms, either things that were going well or the things that weren't going well. I then hypothesised on another wall what I thought would be the uh, treatment plans. So what 
interventions would we devise to accelerate and magnify the things that were going well and to address the things that weren't going well. And then on the fourth wall, I would describe the telemetry that would tell me had we shifted a symptom, had we actually made a difference. And then that essentially formed the overarching strategy of transformative change is to constantly loop around. Have we changed symptom? If not, we change a, you know, what's our new hypothesis on root cause and treatment plan, et cetera. And I embodied all of those uh, symptoms into this uh, idea to value blueprint and into the strategic pillars of the, the change program that we then started to run. Now, I did say you don't turn things into programs and projects, but I just used the word program that we ran. One of the problems with uh, working this way is when you start, you have to start within the system that exists. Yes. So to get yes. money, you have to create a, a vehicle that will get you the money to then go and do the good work to change the system. So we had to start as a program but then very quickly we're able to, within a few short years, uh, devolve that into self-driven normal um, governance uh, forums such as the uh, Pattern and Design Working Group and Delivery Model Working Group that I referred to. So there was a bit more uh, there, which was essentially customising this treatment plan based on what I found at the Royal Bank of Scotland. So there's an element where where what we were looking at was transient ways to kick things off, to look at then create what is the end state ways of doing it. For one of another way, end state's a terrible phrase, isn't it? Uh, there's no end state. There's only a continual improvement state. But you, I, I hope you get my point. There's there's an element where you have yep. to then get it into an embedded state so that it continues to do its job. But to get there, you have to start with where they are. And as you say, here is a program of work for a year. This is what it's called. This is what we hope to achieve, etc. Is that is that fair, Tony? Yeah. Uh, well, we were fortunate enough to, uh, once we had uh, defined effectively the initial business case, which we had to anchor back to traditional um, uh, value measures, you know, things like cost reduction and so on. Um, once we started to get into the rhythm of implementing the new ways of working, we were able to change the conversation away from not just being limited to those key value outcomes, but to um, the, the 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 broader ones, some of the ones we actually talked about last week, some of the le- uh, leading uh, indicators and measuring ourselves on, on a vast variety of non-traditional um, uh, measurements that matter. Um, during that period, yes, I would call that a transitory state. Um, we even went to the extent of identifying roles as being transition roles. Mm-hmm. So... Uh, I'll give you an example. Um, we officially labelled program and project management roles as transition roles, which signposted the future. And and when that was challenged, we said, well, they only need to exist for as long as we have program and project management as a structure. When we're in a continuous delivery mode with perpetual teams that are persistently funded year on year, we just have long backlogs and we don't need to draw upon a program or project management uh, paradigm in order to be able to initiate work. It'll just be 
a long list of backlog items that have been prioritised that we then need to work our way through. That doesn't mean that there won't be programs and projects, by the way, because occasionally there there will be um, once-off um, uh, But you're implying it's not a default state in the Correct. company. It's not a default state anymore. It's a choice to do that for a reason rather than to do it because that's what we always do around here. Yeah. Correct. And so some of those roles, therefore, are transition roles until we reach that state, which yeah. means that largely they live forever but in much reduced numbers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, the tail end of a very interesting transformation where it took an organization that was running itself with big home plannings and all of that, but then we needed to do a massive IT transformation because of a merger. And as part of that work, we created a continuous delivery framework. But now that merger is finishing. And this work that you did there, I'm going to totally steal a lot of ideas here because (laughs) the next year is how do we transition all this magic that we created in transformation in terms of continuous delivery back to line. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I really like this idea of transitional roles because we always saw the program as transitional, but since 80% of the development cap- capacity of the company was there, now we have a great opportunity to no, not go back to the previous system, but yes, to transition this system. And all those ideas around the operating model, I think, are really important because we much simplified the operating model because we had one clear outcome to achieve over three years. Uh, so... Thanks a lot for sharing this, Tony. This is brilliant. Uh, We're useful. We're sort of at the end of our time, but I wouldn't mind if anyone on Clubhouse wants to ask a quick question. We we sort of promise ourselves not to go too far over half an hour, and we're at roughly 29 minutes and 43 seconds at the moment. But if if there's someone on Clubhouse who wants to ask a quick question um, and hopefully a quick answer. Andrew, you come off mic, so I assume you want to make a comment, please. Yeah, it was just a comment. That was awesome, Tony. Um, Love to catch up with you separately and have a bit of a chat about some of the stuff we've been doing around operating models and governance because I think we're pretty aligned in terms of approach. That's very, very cool. Thank you so much. Thanks, Andrew. And and uh, I can con- confer to both Tony and Andrew that you will get on and you will think alike because I, I know you both and uh, I, I think you'll do uh, you'll do some good stuff together spark off each other okay so we're near the end of this podcast uh, what's our summary so we've done the path of least resistance I think Tony said at the start don't push people up the hill get rid of the hill <laughs> you know um, I'm or reminded reshape of, the hill she reshape yeah. the hill I'm reminded of Kurt Llewellyn's sort of you know people are a product of their environment and personality change the environment you know, that's part of what Tony's saying. Again, makes it easier. And that rubber band idea that if you don't change the environment, it reverts back. It reminds me of uh, one of my sort of golden mantras, which is uh, when the going gets tough, people revert to what they know, not what might be successful in the future unless you change the environment. So um, there's some of my thoughts. Rick, Cotter, you got any quick tips as we finish? And then I'll ask Tony the yeah. same. Another very inspiring thing was you need to start within the system to get the funding, but you need to find a way to very quickly transition. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) transition it. So, fantastic. Okay, that's great. Tony, any any final sort of uh, quick thoughts that you want to add that we haven't summarised that you thought you said? That would be useful as well as we finish. No, I think I covered all the key topics. Um, If I was to offer some more, it'll be another half hour of rabbit hole that we go down. So I think I'd better leave it there. Well, we could always do another half hour of rabbit hole. So this this talk is going to be called Still Still With Pride. 
and maybe <laughs> a, another one will be going down the rabbit hole. I like these titles. They, they work very well, don't they? Uh, well, I think that's about it then, really. Uh, just want to thank everyone for coming. Tony, again, thank you for your time. Most appreciative. Lovely stuff. Um, bit of a stroll down memory lane for some of it for me, but really useful. And you've reminded me of a few things. And, you know, in a couple of weeks, I'm hoping to start some work somewhere where I think some of the ideas, and particularly the idea of the delivery model working group, um, and you reintroduced idea to value blueprint into my head, which I hadn't remembered for a few years. So that's been very useful for me as well. So just want to give you a big uh, applause, which I think I can do now with that. Thank you. That's it for this week. You've been listening to Agile Coaching Mastery brought to you by the Agile Coaching Mastery crew. If you want to join the live recording or give us feedback, reach out to us on agileclub.club and look for the Agile Coaching Mastery conversation. Or find us on Clubhouse, look for Agile Club, or subscribe to our YouTube channel. It's called Agile Coaching Mastery. Or you can always find us on LinkedIn. Join us next week for more fun and agile thinking. 